Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, December 13th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So, here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And a reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, now the news for this week. And I guess the biggest news is, once again, we still haven't heard about this Texas lawsuit. So, um but as usual, it might happen while we're sitting here. And then again, it might not. Um, but the, the actual news that we have from the week is for open enrollment. Let's start with a PSA. If you buy your own insurance, the deadline for signing up in the states that use healthcare.gov is December 15th at midnight. Other states may have later deadlines, looking at you, California. Uh, as of Wednesday night, there was already so much volume online that people were being asked to leave their phone numbers and someone would call them back even after the deadline. That has happened many times in years past. Um, so that's a thing. But even with this last minute spurt of interest, it seems like enrollment in ACA compliant individual health insurance is running well behind last year, right? It's about half a million people behind where we were at the comparable period last year. Um, there are about 272,000 fewer new customers, which is a big issue. And so that's something we're certainly watching. Um, health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar this week reminded us that, hey, if you haven't selected a plan and you're already a customer, then you'll be automatically enrolled. Yeah, so after after enrollment closes, those numbers get this big <clears throat> boost by the people who just get auto re-enrolled. Yes, yes. Um, and there are several reasons why we might be seeing this. Um, the individual mandate penalty disappears on January 1st. People no longer have to pay a fine if they don't get covered. Um, there is a lot less conversation around the health care law and the exchanges this year. Than there was last than year. Than there was last year, right. Um, there's so many different things that are going on. Um, and I think that the publicity, the lack of outreach, all of that is a factor. Um, the economy is a little bit better, so maybe some people are getting insurance through their work or potentially through Medicaid if, you know, they're in yeah, Virginia. I was going to say, that's, I mean, that's not an insignificant thing, right? And we've had, we're having states expand Medicaid this year, and presumably some of those people who were eligible for Medicaid were getting subsidies on the exchanges, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's sort of a theme this year that we're seeing people um, that were in the ACA market place maybe going somewhere else. So Medicaid is one example. Um, Rebecca mentioned un the unemployment rate is down, um, you know, so that that really helps things as well. Um, particularly, I mean, it's been going down for, for the last several years. Um, and, you know, also, there are these short-term plans that um, that people can now enroll in, and that's something that the administration expanded the use of those short-term plans. People can get them for a longer period of time than they were able to before, and they cost a little bit less typically because they don't cover as much. Do we know even anecdotally whether people are leaving the exchange? I mean, we know that... You could see how people who didn't have insurance before would buy short-term plans. But do we know that there are people actually leaving the exchange to buy short-term plans? 
There, so I haven't seen anything calculating that yet. I think that's an assumption that, that that's going to add to this. Not that it's going to be as big as the, the mandate um, penalty being repealed or, or other factors, but it, that, that it's a piece of possibly why this is, the numbers are lower this year. But a lot of polling, including by Kaiser, suggests that people just don't know this is going on. They don't know when the deadline is. The vast majority of people responded either not knowing when the deadline was or saying an incorrect deadline uh, in Kaiser's recent poll. And so I think you're seeing the lack. Yeah, this is only the second year that the deadline's been in the middle of December. Exactly. The first couple of years you could go way to the end of January and later. And last year this was the big thing in the news, the administration's, the Trump administration's changes to the Affordable Care Act and Republicans in Congress attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That was the big story at this time last year. And so even when you had President Trump going on TV and saying Obamacare is dead, that still reminded people that Obamacare exists and maybe they should go sign up. So it had this weird reverse effect. And you're just not seeing that this year. When open enrollment started this year, we had the midterm elections. That was the big story. Now we're getting to the end of open enrollment and the big story is the government might shut down over the border wall. And so you're just not hearing a lot about this. And the Trump administration has completely gutted the budget for outreach and informing people how to sign up, where to sign up, when to sign up. And I think you're really seeing that take a toll. One thing that I thought was interesting, I don't know if you guys saw the video that President Barack Obama came out with. Mm -hmm. So that thing has been seen six million times since it came out on Monday. He's going out there and he's doing what he's always done. The the, the tweet, the the original said, no ferns, because he rather famously (laughs) in 2013 did between two ferns Mm -hmm. with Zach Galifianakis, which was uh, not usual for a president, but no, we got a lot of attention. They were trying to get the youths, they were trying to get the youngs (laughs) to enroll, and so they were doing a lot of, you know, funnier die videos and lots of th- stuff to try to reach people. Mm-hmm. But, it's, yeah, I, I did notice. I, I, well, people like us saw the the, the Obama That's video. True. The question is how many of the six million people are people who exactly. are right. impacted I, I, by Right. And today, I, I will yeah. note that Monday was the busiest day of the entire season. So the day the video came out. I don't know if there's a correlation. It but is it's, the beginning of the last week. But it's definitely week. possible. Yes. And when you have... Uh, the government, the federal government, completely disinvesting in outreach. I think these outside groups are swooping in to fill that fill that void. But I think that making an online video and tweeting it out, that can reach a lot of people. It can reach millions of people, but it doesn't have the same reach as all of the government tools that were used in previous years. And can I just say that, that while we're all talking about how, you know, yes, enrollment is down, Obviously, as you said, the economy is pretty good. So uh, there are there are some number of people that are just getting em- employer insurance. But also, you know, there were all these expectations that if you ever got rid of the mandate, the requirement for people to have insurance, that the bottom would just fall out of the market. And the bottom is not falling out of the market. No, there's still yeah. going to be, you know, in, maybe instead of 12 million people, there's going to be 10 and a half million people. But I, I think the, the realization among analysts is that it's the subsidies that are propping up the market, the ability of people... There was a study this week. There's, what, 4 million people who could get free bronze plans. Um, I, I think the, the expectation is that it was, not, it was never the mandate that was driving this. It was the ability to get cheap health insurance that was driving this. Although I think what's troubling a lot of folks looking at the enrollment numbers is that fewer people are enrolling, but a lot fewer people are even going to check out their options in the first place. And so millions of people won't even know they could get a free plan with the subsidies. And so that – and. The thing about a lot of people maybe getting new jobs and getting um, employer 
insurance is that there's always that churn in the market. And what's what's troubling this year is that new folks aren't coming in to replace the folks that are leaving, which is what we saw more before. All right. Next topic, um, women's reproductive health. Uh, First, the Supreme Court on Monday declined to take a case that could have permitted states to kick Planned Parenthood out of the Medicaid program. It only takes four justices to accept a case. But in this instance, um, Chief Justice Roberts and brand new Justice Brett Kavanaugh sided with the liberals to leave the lower court rulings in place. These were for uh, laws in Louisiana and Kansas. and they were those lower courts said the judges uh, the, excuse me in the lower courts the judges said that states could not defund Planned Parenthood that's because there's a requirement in the Medicaid law that patients have free choice of providers it's more legally complicated than that but in general this is not the last we will see of this issue right. <laughs> No, although it's it's notable that uh, the the court's new conservative majority took a pass on their first opportunity to strike a big blow in this area. And we when the Supreme Court decides not to take a case, we don't get to hear from the majority their reasons why they didn't want to take it. But we do hear from the dissenters, the three 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 dissenters, why they thought that was a bad decision. And uh, in this case, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that, and he basically accused his colleagues of being afraid to touch the hot-button issues of Planned Parenthood and abortion and reproductive rights. Um, but we we don't know why they decided not to take the case, and it's especially surprising, not just because all of these anti-abortion, anti-Planned Parenthood groups mobilized to get Brett Kavanaugh confirmed, but also because we now have a circuit split. We now have most of the country States will not be able to cut Planned Parenthood out of their Medicaid programs. But in in the Eighth Circuit, which is a good handful of states, they will. And those patients in those states will not be able to sue to defend their right to go to a provider of their choice. Which is, yeah, which is interesting because normally a circuit split is the one thing that does make the Supreme Court take a case. They have to settle. There has to be a nationwide policy. And now we have, as you point out, in most of the country, these these. Um, decisions will stand that no states can't kick out Planned Parenthood except in the states in the Eighth Circuit. So there were, that's right, there were five appeals courts that decided it the other way. And then there was the Eighth Circuit that was sort of an outlier. I'm going to go out on a limb and speculate a little bit about what's going on just because, you know, why not? Let's take a risk. I think that Chief uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is very concerned about the reputation of the court. He really wants it to be seen as a nonpartisan, nonpolitical body surrounded by very partisan and polarized the executive branch and the legislative branch. And, you know, I I remember what happened in 2012 with the health care law, how he went out of his way to really maneuver this very unusual decision upholding the constitutionality of the individual mandate and upholding the law um, because he didn't want to be seen as partisan. And I think this was not the right case at the right time, you know, on the heels of the controversy of the Kavanaugh confirmation and on an issue as important and divisive as abortion. I think this would have really sparked an outcry. And they have another chance. They have lots of other chances. There are something like 15 other cases at the appellate level that deal with all sorts of abortion issues, ranging from another argument involving defunding Planned Parenthood. There's another way they can go at this because... I'm just about to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll let you do that. So so there's there are those cases. There are cases, you know, there's a Texas case involving the burial and cremation of fetal remains. There are these cases involving um, a, a second trimester abortion procedure known as dilation and evacuation. Um, which the most common the second most trimester common. That's Alabama, abortion right? procedure. Yes. That's the Alabama case? There, there are many there's cases. There's several of them. Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, there, there are other cases also involving um, state laws that have passed that prevent abortion in cases such as, you know, discriminating on the basis of sex or disability. Exactly. Yes. 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 Well, so there are all these opportunities coming down. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember with this one, you know, when you're talking about not being the right case at the right time, that this was about abortion and about Planned Parenthood. But if you get into the nitty gritty of it, it was about the funding determinations that states make, and it was can, really about whether individual wh- whether can they patients be challenged can sue. exactly, right. and yeah. can they be challenged by mm-hmm. patients? So can patients sue over this? And so most of the the state the appeals courts had said yes, patients can sue, and then we had the one that said no, they cannot, and sort of. That's that's what the heart of this is about. Even though it is, it kind of comes off as an abortion case. It's not exactly well, right the same. because had had the Supreme Court taken it and ruled that patients don't have the right to sue to go to a provider of their choice, and states could have stripped funding from Planned Parenthood, which then would have meant that a lot of women would not have access to an abortion provider. And so it's this very or a family sort of planning provider. indirect, yes, indirect right. yeah, abortion I mean, case. Right. It's important mm-hmm. to remember that, that the federal government doesn't fund abortion yes. at Planned Parenthood. The, 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 the question is whether these women can access other services at Planned Parenthood, and Planned Parenthood provides an enormous amount of non-abortion services to women and men. Um, they provide a lot of, uh, of STD testing and treatment. Um, so it, that this is... You know, this the whole thing is it's wrapped up because Planned Parenthood also does abortion and the abortion, the anti-abortion. People argue that money is fungible so that the money they get from Medicaid and I'll talk about this in a second. Title 10 can be used, you know, can help subsidize the abortion services. But the but the fact is that Planned, Portion, Planned Parenthood is a major provider of reproductive and other health services to an awful lot of women, which is a, a big issue. Um, so so let so let with that, let me, let's talk about Title 10 for a minute, um, because obviously this isn't the only effort to defund Planned Parenthood. There is in the pipeline a Trump administration a Trump administration regulation that would effectively force Planned Parenthood out of the federal uh, family planning program, Title 10, and yet another Trump change that was in court this week um, that would have let uh, Title 10 officials give preference to organizations that were that are only using uh, either abstinence or rhythm or, you know, non-chemical, non-barrier methods of family planning. Um, what do we think is good? This is... This is do you guys agree sort of the more likely way that Planned Parenthood is going to get defunded than kicking oh, them out of Medicaid? And and this is what anti-abortion groups are pointing to. They said, you know, the, the election results completely closed the door on Congress at, attempting or successfully defunding Planned Parenthood in the future. And so they're really looking to the Trump administration, which has a lot of tools at its disposal. And this is sort of the main one and the most imminent one because these rules could come down any day now and are expected sometime in December. And it will also get challenged in court. Yes, (laughs) certainly. Um, meanwhile, uh, while Senator Susan Collins, the pro-choice Republican from Maine, says this makes her feel vindicated about her vote in favor there. of Brett Kavanaugh, <laughs> states are already getting to throw lots of abortion-related laws at Washington in hopes of getting this now anti-abortion majority on the court to overturn or at least water down Roe v. Wade. Um, and Rebecca, you mentioned a bunch of these, but I know Ohio this week is working on a revised version of its heartbeat bill, which, you know, those those are 
the bills that would ban abortion at five or six weeks when a heartbeat could be detected, which is before many women know even that they're pregnant. So they're essentially abortion bans. I, I guess, do we think that the that the most, as long as we're speculating, that the most likely case <laughs> is going to be one that's going to sort of frontally go in an abortion ban or maybe some of these more sort of sideways things like defunding Planned Parenthood through the Title X program? I think it you know, we're seeing a lot of challenges uh, um, to the fetal heartbeat bills. You know, Ohio, the Senate just passed it. They're waiting on the House. But, um, you know, there are other states that have done that. And then those have been challenged. And so I think something like that could be ripe for making it to the Supreme Court because you're already seeing it move through the system and through appeals and things like that. It's not even for sure, actually, that Ohio's would become law because Governor Kasich could certainly veto it um, before that happens. And um, he's he's very, very, very anti-abortion. Yeah. Well, he's, veto- he said he's that vetoed he's... it before. Uh, but um, this is a different similar, version. Something similar. Yeah. yeah. So this is a different Hard version. So it's yeah, it's it's not not clear anything that I saw that he would for sure or that he wouldn't either way. A lot of states are passing laws specifically designed to provoke a challenge to Roe versus Wade. Um, and uh, I, I think and I we, guess that was my question. We can put it in that category, although um, in terms of speculating about what is the likeliest path to the Supreme Court and what is the Supreme Court's likely future on this, I, I think based on what we've already seen um, and because of the fears of at the Supreme Court of appearing too activist and partisan, I really think we might continue to see more action on the side of pushing and pushing and pushing the limit of what is an undue burden on a woman's right to seek an abortion and how hard can we make this for women before it infringes on her constitutional right to do so. And that has been something the Supreme Court has already taken several steps on in lower courts as well. And I think that there really isn't a need to touch or overturn Roe versus Wade to really make it um, essentially <laughs> impossible yeah. for, for a woman to get an abortion. Yeah. Or, or as I think we've discussed before, sort of back to 1972 before mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade, where you could get abortions in some states and you basically couldn't get abortions in most states. And you could if, if you had a lot of financial resources. You could go to one of those states where you could get an abortion. Right, right. And if you were poor, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Although right now, it's pretty much if you're poor, exactly. sorry. Exactly. I mean, we're headed in that direction. Yeah. yeah. All right. One more on the reproductive health front. Um, It appears that the NIH, National Institutes of Health, is quietly trying to shut down research involving tissue from uh, aborted fetuses, even though Congress explicitly voted to allow this research with strict safeguards and large bipartisan majorities in 1993. This was something uncovered by Science Magazine last week. Um, What's up with fetal research? Well, as we speak, the um, the House a House committee is having a hearing right now about this particular issue. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services is really rethinking its entire approach to fetal research. Um, fetal t- tissue research started in the 1920s. It's been used for decades. It's gotten a lot of traction because people believe that it leads to discoveries and cures. But people on the other side, abortion opponents, say that it's unethical and there, there are other alternatives they want Congress and, and uh, scientists to look to, like umbilical blood cord and adult stem cells and other things. And so we'll see what happens. Um, I think HHS is taking a very close look at this and meeting with a lot of groups to figure out what their approach will be. I think what made this um, sort of obviously in in and of itself, it's an interesting development and what's going on. So NIH has essentially paused 
um, any acquisition by its scientists of the fetal tissue um, as of September while the Trump administration reviews this whole thing. And, you know, what Science Magazine talked about was um, this specifically affects a study on um, possibly, you know, we don't really know, but potentially a cure for HIV. Um, and so the the effects are, are pretty large. And what they were doing is they were using the tissue to humanize mice. I, I don't know the process that that involves, um, but it helps them to study the HIV virus because mice are, are susceptible to it. And, um, and it helps them to study the effect of drugs on it and things like that. And they didn't have enough mice humanized before that they were told they couldn't get any more fetal tissue. Um, interestingly, I thought a lot of fetal tissue is um, gotten from this one company. Um, it's Advanced Bioscience. Um, and it um, it was kind of one of those implicated in these um, baby parts videos that were came up a few years ago. Um, that obviously were doctored and not true, but this anti-abortion group had tried to make Planned Parenthood look like they were selling fetal tissue for um, for, profit, for profit, and which they're not allowed to do. Which they're not allowed to and do, and they and doing. they and they weren't doing, but right. they they doctored these videos to make it look like it, and kind of this this that involves that company, and now that company isn't being able to sell fetal tissue to the government um, or give it to the government for research or things like that. So it's an, an interesting um, kind of circle going on right now. And so a couple of things. So one, even a temporary pause on the researchers acquiring the materials they need to do their research, even a temporary pause of a few months is really damaging based on how research works. And um, these scientists are saying, you know, it could take years to get back to where they were. They can't just shut down their lab for a little bit and rev it right back up and pick up where they started. That's not how it works. And you need a lot, you need a large sample size to conduct proper research. And so uh, I think that we we should keep that in mind. We should keep in mind that, oh, it's it's just a temporary pause can have really devastating consequences for these scientists. The other thing I want to point out is that looking ahead to next year, I think this is going to be a big fight in Congress with the split between the House and the Senate, because for several years, uh, this research was allowed at the federal level. And it passed in the Senate. I went yes. and looked this up. 92 to 8. Right. So for a lot of years, the House, the Republican House kept trying to put something in banning the research and the Senate always stripped it out before the, the bill made it out of Congress. So in the years to come, what what is going to happen if the federal government does ban it and the House tries to restart it, re-allow it, and the Republican Senate blocks that? It could be a huge fight. Yeah, I, I suspect you're right. Um, okay, finally this week, let's catch up on the conversation we had several weeks ago about proposed changes to the public charge rules. These are immigration rules about when legal immigrants or people who are applying to come here legally can progress through the process to become citizens. The Trump administration wants to beef up the rules about people who might become public charges, in other words, um, depending on the government, um, by counting against immigrants, not just use of cash welfare programs, um, but also health and other social service programs. This has alarmed public 
public health officials who worry that this chilling effect uh, about people not seeking medical treatment is already uh, in in place and happening. Um, where are we on these rules? So so there were more than 200,000 comments that were filed on these rules. Um, the rules that came out are a little bit more moderate than what was originally leaked last year and that people have been talking about for a long time. Um, there's this complicated formula, and if you have received... As of when the rule takes effect, if you receive food stamps or Medicaid or Medicare Part D prescription drug coverage, things like that, things that are not that are not cash assistance, then suddenly that will count against you in terms of getting a green card or being able to move forward. And so I there this is a very hot button issue right now. Medical providers are very upset about it um, because they think that it will affect the health and well-being of of the public. Um, and this is something that I did a little reporting on a year ago. I, I talked to some clinics around the country And even before this had been proposed, this was proposed in September, but a year ago, people were already in California and Illinois and Georgia, all over the country, were already seeing a decline in interest in people coming in and saying, hey, can you take my name out of the database? And can you, you know, I I want to stop getting benefits. And it's... It's something that is particularly concerning because people might have U.S.-born children, American citizens, who are not getting benefits that they're entitled to because of the fear that this might inhibit their ability to get a green card. And we saw just a month or so ago the uh, the, the first increase in number of uninsured children in, in like 15 or 20 years. Um, so, I mean, there's and some people said that, that this might be one of the contributing factors mm-hmm. of people who are not signing their, their kids up for CHIP or other health programs that they're eligible for because they're worried about this whole public charge thing. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't even gone into effect yet. Um, it's, it's a proposal. And so there was time for a comment period. Those were all the comments that Rebecca mentioned, um, mostly in opposition, it seemed like. And they, um, the, the government does not, you know, they'll take them into consideration. They don't have have to change anything if they um, decide they don't want to. But, um, you know, the chilling effect is possibly already starting, and that's before it even, you know, becomes a final rule. So I think it's really likely we'll see a, a lot more uninsured kids. Alice, you were mentioning before how people don't know that it's open enrollment. People don't know what the actual status of this is. And I, th- I, think, that, I think the rule itself says that they won't, that it'll only be going forward, that they mm-hmm. won't penalize you going back from before the rules took effect, but people don't know that, right? Of course, and and these rules are incredibly complicated, and they the timing is unknown about implementation, when they'll be published, and they'll go into effect 60 days after they'll publish, and some types of benefits count, and some don't, and some do for your children, and, some, and so you can't expect the average person who may not even speak English to have, <laughs> to, to be able to parse through all of that, and so people are just getting the message that using benefits will hurt you, and will hurt your family's ability to get a green card, and I think you're seeing the effect of that right now. Well, even if you could figure out that complicated formula, which seems impossible, a lot of this is at the discretion of the immigration officials right. as well. So mm-hmm. they gather all this data, they punch it into the formula, but they can still say yay or nay either mm-hmm. way. And there was a there was a good piece in Vox about how um, that individual discretion has always been a part of. So even when public charge was more of an informal thing and it was completely up to the discretion of, of the officer. And so I, I think that it's important to remember that 
that sort of legacy of this concept of you're just having these regular frontline people deciding the fate of these immigrant families and deciding whether or not they'll be able to support themselves in the future based on a very limited set of information. And I think it's really hard to judge the impact of something like this. Um, You know, um, if you're if you are a legal resident, then you're not eligible to get Medicaid for five years. Um, And they don't track the federal government does not track those people so that you can't really see whether there's a decline. People outside researchers can try to look at that, but it's not something the federal government tracks. I did last year crunch some numbers in California. It's one of the few states that allows coverage for people who are not documented, who are illegal immigrants. And what I found was pretty interesting because in conservative parts of the state, you could see a pretty significant decline in coverage in Medicaid which, you know, this was happening for the past few years. So I think all of this rhetoric and all of this concern about immigration is having an impact in some way. And it's having, I mean, you know, the reason I bring it up here is that it's having an impact on the healthcare system yes. because it's people who, you know, and there's always, yes, there is emergency Medicaid for anybody. People don't really know that, though. And there is a real concern about, you know, communicable diseases mm-hmm. and, and, and epidemics and, and, you know, individual people suffering who shouldn't be, but also, you know, putting the greater society at large uh, at large at risk. So it, uh, it is a continuing issue. All right. That is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Alice, you're smiling at me. Why don't you go first this week? Sure. I would like to promote my colleague's uh, very excellent story on a brewing fight that will, I think, be very big in the news next year and we should all be thinking about now. Uh, My colleague Adam Cankerin wrote about the industry groups that are lining up to oppose any push for Medicare for All, um, which is set to be a big fight in the next Congress, mostly in the House. (laughs) Um, But these groups have been mobilizing far earlier than folks knew. So even early last year, basically as soon as the attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act failed in Congress and people started talking about pushing for Medicare for all, these industry groups already started lining up with messages that sound a lot like the Republicans in the Trump administration, even though uh, these folks are alums of the Obama and Hillary campaigns. Uh, you're hearing some of the same and they were talking back, points. They were backers of the Affordable Care Act. Yes, yes. The same groups that rallied to save the Affordable Care Act are now rallying to stop the push for Medicare for all. And I, I think that, yeah, being aware of all of this early positioning before we get into the fights over the different bills and different models in Congress is important. Oh, yeah. Anna. Um, so mine is from the Washington Post. It's investigation of generic cartel expands to 300 drugs. It's by Christopher Rowland. Um, so there has been this um, this investigation into some generic drug companies for raising their prices sort of in collusion. And um, the this reporter essentially got a sit down um, with the assistant AG who um, has been leading the probe that's in Connecticut. And he, um, you know, told him that there, you know, this was sort of a a few drugs and a few companies to start off with. He told them this is now, you know, I think 15 or 16 companies and 300 drug, generic drugs that they're looking at. Um, He called it like the possibly the largest cartel in U.S. history. Um, And so it's um, I I thought that was unusual to get a sit down with the, the person who 
is um, leading a probe like this. And I think it's an interesting read just to see what what potentially is going on here. Um, Something certainly to look forward to when this probe is over. Rebecca, and I realize I handed you the wrong story. That's your story. (laughs) So I chose one by a sharp reporter. We might have heard of her, Anna Edney. She did a great story um, about fentanyl, which is terrifying in and of itself. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said this week that um, fentanyl is implicated in more overdose deaths than anything else. And it's 50 times more potent than heroin. It's a big deal. And Anna gave us something else to worry about and keep us up at night. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, About the potential of it to be used as a bioterrorism weapon, which I had never thought of. So great. Yeah, thanks a lot. (laughs) Happy holidays. Yes, exactly. But seriously, I mean, how easy it would be. Well, I forget the, the exact, Anna, you remember the exact amount that it would take to, to, to you know, basically kill how many people? Yes. Yeah, so this um, this patrol officer in Nebraska found 118 pounds, which is enough to kill 25 million people. Um, it only takes a few grains. Um, the, the thing is, you know, for, it only takes a few grains to be deadly for one person. So the thing with this is kind of on how you would use it, you know, how would how you could actually do that, you probably wouldn't be killing 25 million people all at one time, but that's just the amount that you're, you're, that would equal that many deaths, essentially. And you were writing in your story about how, you know, if you get it on your hands and then people put it in their mouths accidentally, I mean, it can have an adverse effect with just very casual contact. So. Right. Yeah. The skin absorption isn't the isn't really kind of a, a huge concern. Um, it's when you use your your hands, you're always touching your face or maybe wiping, you know, just putting your fingers in your mouth while you're eating or something like that. And that's certainly a way that it can um, it can be deadly. Mm-hmm. By the way, Congress is still not taking action on this little preparedness bill that would address things like this. So they did provide the money, but we're still waiting for them to do the the authorization to allow this sort of program to combat stuff like that. Well, to the, the one nice thing about the, the prolonged shutdown fight is that Congress is stuck here, which gives them time to do other things before the end of the Congress. Sure. So we shall see. All right. Well, my story is a depressing but important story from Janet Adamy and Paul Overberg at The Wall Street Journal about the growing epidemic of loneliness among the elderly, particularly elderly baby boomers. It seems that the number of widowed, childless, and never-married boomers is, well, booming, leaving increasing numbers of people with no one to care for or about them. Studies have shown that being lonely is bad for your health. In fact, in England, I think there's now a minister of loneliness. Uh, But it also highlights the fact that the U.S. still has no serious long-term care policy, despite three decades of hand-wringing about who is going to care for the aging baby boomers. So a little bit bit slower but still depressing than maybe the fentanyl. So (laughs) that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Anna Edney. At Rebecca Adams, D.C. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.